0: Well, today we are going to be wrapping up our Exiles and Alien Sermon series. We have been going through the book of 1 Peter all summer that we have been looking at what does it mean for us to live in this world but not of it. That we live here. We, we were saved here and we have a life to live here as an ambassador, a witness, as a missionary, but this world is not our home. Remember, Peter was writing this to, to aliens and exiles, he said that Christians that were living in in modern-day Turkey, that they knew that the world was not their home, they could see and feel the rumblings of persecution, and he wanted to give them hope in the midst. And so uh, today we're going to be wrapping up this sermon series. You can go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to go through a a chunk of Scripture in a bit, hit a couple of the things, and then we're going to zoom in on the main portion for today. But I want to look at where have we been as we wrap up this sermon series, let's not just be like, Okay, First Peter, that was a really cool thing. We talked about aliens at church. Awesome. And then we just kind of leave it behind. Okay, let's, let's, let's let this settle deep in us that we live the rest of our lives as exiles and aliens. That's what it says down there at the bottom in, in, in the, the blue banner there. It's living out our hope in a world that's not our home. You know, there are so many people that hope that they're going to heaven. And not with the biblical kind of hope. But I, I, hope, I hope I make it there. I hope I've been good enough. I think I've been good enough. I'm not, I mean, I'm not like that bad. I haven't like really done all these wrong things. Or I used to do this, but I don't do that anymore. I've been sober for X amount of years. And they have wishful thinking. And they need someone who doesn't just have wishful thinking, but who has a confident expectation. Look, it's not that I hope that I get there because I'm good enough. Because I'm not. If that's what it was, I'd be in trouble. But I have a confident expectation because Jesus died in my place. And that's the confident expectation you have as a Christian. And that's the confident expectation, the true biblical hope that the world needs. That's why this book is so important. Because we're called to live out that hope in front of a world that's not our home. Because they're watching so the theme of this book is living as exiles and aliens. This world is not our home. The context that weaves its way through every aspect of this book is suffering. These early Christians were suffering for their faith. They were being persecuted for their faith. Their persecution was beginning to ramp up. This is the time that Emperor Nero was in charge, and he was brutal to the Christians. This is something that here in America we don't we don't really fully understand. Like we may understand what it's like, to receive some type of persecution. We may be ostracized for our faith. People may be critical of us. They may attack us. They may, they may think that we hate them or whatever. I mean, there's so many things that are thrown at Christians that we feel, okay? But it's not like our brothers and sisters around the world that are literally imprisoned and, and killed for their faith. And that's what these people were were facing. And so suffering and suffering in the midst is all throughout this book. But like the crux of it, and this is another thing that appears throughout the whole book, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's the hope that we have. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have have a new birth into a living hope, a hope that's alive. We have new birth into a certain and imperishable inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for us while we're protected here. That's where our hope comes from. Out of that resurrection of Jesus Christ and the living hope that we have, we now have a new identity as an individual, as a new creation, that the old has been washed away and the new has come. Well, we are somebody that is being sanctified, right? Remember when I had that sucker here a couple months ago? We talked about sanctification. If I had this sucker and I don't want Carol to have it, okay, because it's my sucker. Well, I mark it as mine. I r- take the wrapper off and I lick all over it. Okay, it is mine. I've set that apart as mine. She probably won't want to lick of it, right? Okay, if I would have had ransom here, he'd be like, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> okay, it's my sucker. Now, as I lick it and lick it, and how many licks does it take to get in the middle of a Tootsie Pop? And I, and I, it becomes more and more mine. It's set apart. And one time, finally, I probably get bored of licking it, I crunch it up, and I eat it. It has now fully become mine. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be made holy to be set apart when you put your faith in Jesus you're his there's still a lot of the world in you you're still going to have your whole life fighting against the flesh right as we grow in our life we become more and more set apart and when we die or when Christ comes back the transformation is complete our sinful nature is gone and there's just we as he is so are we then and that's what it means, that, that, that's the hope that we have, that's the sanctification. And so out of this, the exhortation is to be a witness to the world because the world is watching. Remember, he's got that phrase, let the conversation of your life, let the manner of your life uh, live in an excellent way because the world is watching. He's reflecting what Jesus taught them, right? That let your light shine before all men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's about letting the world see the hope that is in us. And this is Peter in a nutshell. And today we're going to be talking about standing firm in grace. Okay? We're going to read um, from chapter 4, verse, nine, uh, verse 12 to the end of the book. And how he ends it is, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Okay? So that's going to be our theme for today. So we're going to read through some of this. We'll just make a couple comments here or there. And we're going to focus in on, on kind of the last part of chapter 5. Okay? Um, I really wanted to make sure that we read through this whole letter throughout the sermon series. So we didn't necessarily cover every verse in detail, but by the end of today, I believe we'll have read through, through the whole letter. So let's read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the, spirit, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So what he's saying is, look, don't be surprised that you're going through suffering. Okay? Skiff Lake Bible Church. Don't be surprised at the trials you face in life. Don't be surprised at the calamities that come. In this world, you will have trouble. You'll have tribulations. You'll have trials. Don't be surprised at it. That's part of living in a broken world. But take heart for Christ has overcome the world. So he says, look, if you suffer for your faith, don't be surprised like it's some weird, crazy thing. We're going to suffer for our faith one way or the other. Different degrees, different things, but we go through suffering. But in the midst of that, God shapes us in the midst of our suffering. He purifies us in the midst of our suffering. And we can be a witness in the midst of our suffering. Then he says this, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So there's kind of two ways to look at this little part. Like, if there's judgment from the world right now, like in the world Christians are persecuted, if it's time for judgment now, if we're facing persecution now, if it begins with us, what is going to happen when Christ returns to those that have rejected him? It kind of puts it in in perspective, so to speak. Another way to look at it is if now in this life, if we go through trials, and the good that God brings out of it is He's purifying us through it. If that's happening now, what about the judgment that's coming at the end of time for those that don't know? It puts it in perspective. I was reading a book once where a a pastor was talking with somebody from his congregation, and he just said, what do we have that will last forever? As Christians, we talked about inheritance. We talked about heaven. We talked about our, our family together, right? That we'll be together with the Lord always. And then he said, and what does somebody who doesn't know Jesus have that will last forever? It's a sobering thought to think about. Because the only thing that someone who doesn't know Jesus that has that will last forever is an eternity separated from God in hell. And I think that's what Paul, uh, Peter is wanting, wanting the readers to get to realize the suffering that we go through is small compared to the glory that's coming and for us to remember that there is a judgment that's coming and how are we living in a way to impact those so that they don't have to face that judgment without Christ. And then he says, Therefore, if you suffer according to the will of God, entrust your souls to the faithful creator by doing what is right. He's challenging them to be like Christ. Christ is the ultimate unjust sufferer, right? Right? Like he suffered unjustly. It wasn't anything he did, but it was what was needed in order to provide redemption for God's people. And so he said, not my will, but your will be done. I will trust you in that. Therefore, okay, this is, he's wrapping up the letter. This is the last chapter. So therefore, because of the suffering and the persecution, but also the whole chapter, he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder." as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Look, Peter is saying, look, he's not coming at them like, hey, I'm an apostle. I was with Jesus, so you need to listen to me. He says, elders, leaders of the church, as a fellow elder, as someone who is serving alongside with you, yes, as someone who's witnessed the suffering of, of Christ, as a partaker of the glories that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. This is how a church is supposed to be led and run. And you know what? We are blessed with the board of elders that we have. Men that want to shepherd the flock of God among you. And this is the exhortation that Peter gives. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily. According to the will of God. And not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. How elders that are here, okay, leaders in the church, this is what we're supposed to be like. He says, "Look, I want you to realize that the flock that you're taking care of is not yours; it's God's. I want you to have an eagerness to serve, not an obligation." I want you to have a concern about what you can give rather than what you can receive and what you want to receive. And remember, when you lead, you lead by example, not by force. And so you know what? That's a challenge for us as elders. I really think that's a way for all of us to live, right? But in the midst of that, I ask, pray for us as elders. Pray for us that God would make us more and more into that. Because when we talk about requirements of an elder and what it means like I don't think any of us feel worthy that we can do that so pray for us that God will will make us into those men that he's called us to be to lead his people here because we dare not go in front of him we go right beside him right behind him so pray for us because this is how we desire to be and this is how we desire to live So he gives an exhortation to the elders. This is how you are to lead and to live. And he says, and when the chief shepherd, okay, elders, you're under shepherds is what he's saying. Okay, remember, you're underneath Christ. When he appears, you'll receive the fading crown of uh, the unfading crown of glory. And Paul would say something about this. He says, There is in store for me a crown that is waiting, and not just for me, but for all who long for the appearing of Christ. At the end of this book, in the midst of suffering, Peter is reminding everybody, not just the elders, the crown of life that is coming. Then he gives an exhortation to younger men. And I don't think this is just the younger men, but also the rest of the congregation. So likewise, in the same way that I just gave an exhortation to the elders, now I give an exhortation to the younger men. Be subject to your elders. Again, that's that submission. Put yourself underneath them. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now it's interesting. I I know that verse. I've heard that. we probably all heard that a lot. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But when I was doing a little bit of study in that, sometimes I think of like opposed, it doesn't seem a super strong word. Like God opposes, but when you look at that word, it's like sets up battle against. Yeah. So pride is kind of a big thing. Pride is what Lucifer, right, before he was Satan... I'm going to ascend to the most high. I'm going to be just as good. I'm going to be better than God. It's about me. It's not really about him. And God's like, no, that's not right. He, th- that's a strong word. And you know what? We all probably struggle with pride in, in, in different ways. But here Peter wants, wants us to realize, look, it's not about what you can do. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about how strong you are or how good you are. or about. It's not about you. Lay down your pride and pick up humility. And why is that? It says God gives grace to the humble, gives unmerited favor to the humble. You know what? Sometimes this thing can be such a stumbling block for people because they don't want, they can't come to the conclusion that they need a Savior. They want to do it themselves. And you know what? Sometimes we can fall into that. Like we've accepted Christ, we've accepted His grace, but then we feel like we've got to live this life. And if we don't live up to the standard, then... And He says, no, 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 no. When you realize how much you need God, that's when you get grace. Not when you think of how much you can do for God. But when you realize how much you need Him. And so what does it mean for us to be humble? Uh, being humble doesn't mean that we think everybody's better than ourselves and we're just this like, scumbag down on the ground. okay? Humility, really, when we look at it in, in the biblical sense, is having an accurate view of who God is we talked about this before. God is big. God is strong. God is creator. And I'm not God. That's what it means to be humble. We realize who God is. We realize who we are. And we realize who we are in Christ. So because we see the great value we have in Christ, we can then put ourselves under one another and seek to put the interest of others ahead of our own. That's what it means to walk in humility. We know who God is. We know who we are. We know the worth he has given us. He paid for us by Christ's blood. You are worth more than any amount of money in the world. And because of that, we can joyfully submit to one another and seek to put each other's interest ahead of our own. That's what it means for us to be humble. Let's continue on reading. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety on him for he cares for you. You see, there's this connection here, the connection of submitting to one another, connection to submitting to the elders. And he says, look, God opposes the proud, sets up battle against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Kind of makes sense, right? If you want grace, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. He says, look, when you go through the sufferings of life, you can trust that God is working. You can trust he's protecting. You don't have to understand it but you can trust that he is protecting you to bring you to that inheritance and so you can submit under his mighty hand and know that one day you will be exalted to that inheritance. This life may not be what you want it to be. It may not be how you want it to be, but you can trust that God is walking with you through this. And then it says, casting your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And, and maybe you've heard that verse, like just taking, just cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. But it, it's really one sentence. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety on Him. That casting your anxiety is the outcome, is the fruit of humility. Because anxieties are the things that, the word is divisions. I mean, if, if you struggle with anxiety or you've ever been anxious it's like there's all these concerns and there's all these things going on that divide what you're focused on. And you can't focus on the thing that you want to because there's all these other things that are going on. And there's a wide range of of anxiety. And we are bio, psycho, social, spiritual beings. That means that we have a body and there's biology in our body. There's chemical things in our brain that affect how we feel things and how we think things. Okay, that's true. We are uh, that, So we're bio people. We're psychological people. We have a brain, synapses, chemicals, and all that. Okay, we're also social people. How we interact with people influences us and we're spiritual people, okay? All those things work together. And so the, as we... Look at what he's talking about anxiety. There's truth from the scripture of God's word. Sometimes there's also things where we can get help in the different areas, whether it's biology or psychology, to help the, the balances in our, in our brain and our body. Okay? But this is what he's saying. If you are prideful, you're not going to want to cast your anxieties on God. Why? Because you can do it. right? I, I can do it. I don't, I don't have to cast my anxieties on God because I, I can do it. So he says, look, humble yourself before God, realize how much you need him, and cast your anxieties on him. Why? Why why can we do that? Look out there. He cares for you. God cares for you. I love the verse in the Psalms that says, he knows that we are just dust. He's mindful that we are humans. He understands. He understands the struggles we go through. And so he says, cast your anxieties on me. I'm not a fisherman, okay? So I didn't bring a fishing pole to cast it out, okay? But the picture of this is to cast out a fishing pole and then to cut the line, not reel it back in. When we have those things that that weigh on us and the worries and the anxieties that we go, God cares for me, I can trust him, he's God, I'm not, and I'm going to cast it out and I'm going to cut the line. And when the worries come up, I'm going to go before him in prayer and I'm going to ask him for his help. And I'm going to trust Him. And you know what? For some of you, that may be more of a battle than it is for others, but God is there in the midst of that. And so how do we kind of overcome some of that anxiety? Is uh, we, we pray, right? We give those to God. We cast it to God. We realize what is true. What does God's Word say about my situation? And we lean on the encouragement of others. You can't do it alone. We're not made to go through this life alone. So Peter says, look, Humble yourselves under God. Cast your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And then He says this Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist Him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect. Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, which is another uh, name for Silas, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So he's saying the church from Babylon. More than likely, that means the church from Rome. Okay? Because Babylon was kind of the symbol of evil, and often the term Babylon became the symbol for Rome. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you who are in Christ. And this is how he wraps it up. And what I wanted to spend the rest of the time focusing on uh, today is starting with this verse here Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, I get it. Anybody ever been there in life where you just, you know, yeah, Satan wants to eat me up. I feel that battle. I understand that struggle. And so here Peter is saying, here's how you resist Satan. Okay, we're going to look at a couple verses here up on the screen where Peter is talking about being sober, okay? And that word there, okay, keep sober in spirit, up there in green, in these three verses, chapter 1, 13, chapter 4, 7, and chapter 5, 8, where it says sober in spirit. That word literally means to abstain from wine. He's not just talking about wine, but he's saying, don't be intoxicated by the things of the world. Live an unintoxicated life, okay, that shows up in each of those verses, okay? Then there's uh, a couple other ones. So the blue, the orange, and the yellow, those are some different words, okay? So these verses are all connected in, here's the action I want you to take. Be sober. Be under control. Don't let yourself become intoxicated by the cares or the worries of life or your own sinful desires. But what are you supposed to do instead? Therefore, prepare your minds for action, Get ready. This world's not your home. Okay, You don't just kick up your feet and coast through life. Get ready. Keep sober in spirit. Live unintoxicated. And what do we do out of that? Fix our hope completely on the grace to be given you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So get ready to live this life. Live unintoxicated and remember, focus on the grace that's coming when Christ is revealed. And then in chapter 4, he says, look, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment. That word is to have a safe, sound, redeemed mind. Know who God is. Know who you are. And know what, who he's called you, who he's, the new identity you have in Christ. And be of sober spirit. Live unintoxicated. Why? For the purpose of prayer. And finally, be of sober spirit. Live unintoxicated. Be on the alert. That's watch. It's live carefully. It's take heed lest something bad happens, okay? Why? Because you have an adversary. You have an enemy. The devil. He's your adversary. His name literally means the one who slanders, the one who accuses. And he's an enemy, and he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to eat you up. That's straight from Scripture. You have an enemy. If you don't realize that, you need to know that. You're in a battle. We're in a battle right now. I mean, uh, we've used this illustration before. Like, uh, let's say you are making snowballs in the winter. Because I like to throw snowballs at trees. I like to try to see if I can hit trees. I was a pitcher in Little League, so I like to see if I still got it, okay? Uh, I broke my arm in high school, so I don't. my arm doesn't throw the same, okay? But let's say you're doing that, and you're just having fun making snowballs, and then all of a sudden you realize the other people around aren't just having fun doing target practice, you're in a snowball fight. If you don't know that you're in a snowball fight, you're not ready. You're getting pelted with snowballs. If you don't realize that you're in a battle, how can you stand firm? How can you resist Satan? Knowing that we're in a battle is like half the battle. So let's just dig a little bit into that. So we're, we're in a battle, okay? And Satan is our adversary. He's our enemy. He wants to destroy you. Like that's, It's that simple, okay? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. He's not playing, uh, you know, he's not uh, just having fun or whatever. Like, he's at war. He wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you back from uh, being the person that God has made you to be. He wants to make your time on earth futile and unproductive. He wants to suffocate you with sin, insecurity, fear, and discouragement. He wants to do whatever he can to keep you from living out the mission God has given us, from living in the abundant life. Our enemy is cunning and strategic. He knows where we pose the greatest threat, and he seeks to undermine us there. And he knows our greatest weaknesses and our tendencies, and he constantly hits us there, right? Amen, right? We feel that. He wants to keep us from fulfilling what God has called us to do, and he loves to be in disguise. He loves for us not to realize we're in a battle so he can just fight against us without us realizing that we can fight back. He wants us to be apathetic and just to accept failure. We're in a battle, and we have an enemy. And by ourselves, we are in over our heads. But the truth is God is so much more powerful than Satan. And we win this battle because we're connected to the one who is more powerful than him as I think about it, there's a. am the middle of five kids, okay? So my brother is three years older than me and my six, sister is six years older than me, okay? So I remember one time in particular, okay? I don't remember how old I was, but it was a time where my sister was still like the biggest, okay? She was the oldest and she was the biggest. My older brother hadn't got like bigger and more assertive than her, okay? My sister danced. She was a ballerina, okay? That means, among other things, when she kicks, she can have it fly right past your head, okay? Because she's very flexible because she's stretching and dancing, okay? So I don't remember what happened, but I was probably wrestling with my brother or he was picking on me or something, and my sister came to my help. Now, she did not kick my brother, but I, I remember, like, the foot flashing by, okay? Cause because I was connected to my sister, who at that time was the bigger, stronger one, I won, Okay? And, and that's how it is. Satan and God are not equal opposites. God is all-powerful. Satan is a created being. And so we, we need to remember we're in a battle and we need to remember who we're connected to because that's how we win. He says, resist, Satan, firm in your faith. How do you win? By remaining steadfast in the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. That's how we win. Here's a couple of things uh, that we can remember in the midst of the battle. Here's some things to remember. The devil has been disarmed and embarrassed. He's been overruled. He's been mastered. He's been rendered powerless and all his hard work has been destroyed. Okay, let's look at those verses. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins... In the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, He took it away and nailed it to the cross. In this next part. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Satan has been disarmed and embarrassed because in the thing that he thought that he was going to be winning... Christ rose from the dead and destroyed him. Next verse, Ephesians chapter 1. It says, The power at work within us is like the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. Christ is the one who rules. Satan has been overruled. The next verse. Therefore God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord of everything. He is master over Satan. From Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children, he's talking about us, have flesh and blood. Jesus, too, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You see, Satan's greatest weapon, death, has been destroyed. Because death for a Christian simply brings us into the presence of God. Last verse that we'll get here about this. 1 John 3, 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Christ has come to destroy the work of Satan. As a Christian, you fight from a position of victory. The battle has been won. You don't fight, we don't fight in order to be victorious. We fight because we already have won the battle. So how do we do this, okay? How do we look at, at this? Let's look back at First Peter. So he says, look, be sober of spirit, be unintoxicated, be alert, be ready. Like if you knew a lion was out prowling around Jackson and you were walking from the store to your car, you would walk differently than you do in a normal day, right? You'd like before you went out the door, you'd be like, look around. You'd be ready. You'd be prepared. So he says, look, be ready. Realize you have an enemy. He wants to eat you up. You need to resist him. And we go, Peter, how do we do that? Standing firm in your faith. Those verses that we just looked at, how Satan has been defeated already. The verses that we know about how God walks with us through the hard times, that he's going to bring us to the inheritance. The verses that we know of God's character, his promises. When we stand firm in our faith, when we're persuaded that who God is and he's trustworthy and true, that's how we stand against Satan. That's how we resist Satan. And also we realize you're not alone. The suffering you go through, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. No matter what it is, you're not the only one that's gone through the same type of suffering. Someone else has gone through it too. We can realize as we look around the world that Christians are suffering and we're in a battle. It's a battle that we win. And we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has gone before us and that we're not alone in this. And then this verse, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then the last part I kind of just put up there. This is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is what he's saying. This is a grace of God. This is how you win. This is how you live the missionary life in this world. This is how you live out your hope in a world that is not your home. And I love this part because Peter understands this. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What do those words mean? God himself will mend what is broken and repair you. He'll complete you. That's what it means to perfect. That God will firmly establish you. That's what it means to confirm. That God will strengthen you, okay, to make you strong, and that God will lay his foundation in you. And here's the thing. Peter understands this because what did Peter do on Thursday night into Good Friday? Anybody know? What did Peter do? He denied Christ three times, right? Here's what Jesus said to Peter before then. Simon, Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So when you have turned, when you have repented, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You see, when, Satan, when Peter writes about Satan being a lion that's prowling around, he's not writing as some hypothetical thing. He's felt this. On the night when Peter betrayed Jesus three times, Jesus said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. The trial was coming. Peter failed, right? Three times. I don't know him. He even said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I even know the man. He was calling down curses on himself. Like, if I'm lying, strike me dead. Like, it's that kind of thing. I don't even know who he is. He understands what it's like to fight and fail. Anybody been there before? Isn't it good to know that the Apostle Peter knows what it's like to fight and fail? And he knows what it's like to turn and receive grace when all he feels he should have is condemnation. You see, Judas failed, right? Judas failed. And in his grief and his sorrow, he went out and hung himself. And in Peter's grief and sorrow, he turned back. And he received the grace. And he was established to be a shepherd. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of my people, Peter. And he did. This brings great hope for us. Because like Peter, we may go through times where it seems so dark. Maybe you're in a place or you've been in a place where you feel like there can't be any forgiveness or grace left for me because of what I've done. I feel like I've been swallowed up. And maybe it's not your sin. Maybe the suffering and the trials you're going through, you're like, I feel like I'm being swallowed up. And here's what I want you to know. It was the prayers of Christ for Peter that brought him through it. I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed that your faith would not fail. Christ is praying for you. Do you realize that? Right now, Christ is interceding on your behalf, that your faith may not fail. So if you find yourself in a place like Peter did, where he felt like he was too far gone, God's grace meets us there. Brings us back and says, I will perfect you. I'll make you holy. I'll repair what is broken. I'll strengthen and establish you. I'll lay my foundation in you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is how we live out our hope. We realize that we don't bring anything to God that's anything, it's all His love and His grace. And in humility, we accept that, and we receive it. So, what does this mean for us today? As we wrap up the sermon in this sermon series, we need to realize that we're in a battle. You're in a battle. You have an enemy that wants to destroy you. That doesn't need to make us afraid. It just makes us aware. Sometimes, in some ways, it actually helps because I go like, Oh, it may, life makes sense now. I understand it. I'm in a battle." Live in humility. Realize who God is, who you are, and who he's made you to be. And in your humility, you can cast yourself and your cares on him because he cares for you. Know that you fight from a place of victory, a position of victory, not in order to try to be victorious, but because you already are. And then we can rest in the God who makes perfect, the God who will repair what is broken Mend what is broken and make perfect. Because that inheritance is coming. And we are protected until that day. And in the midst, that gives us great hope. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you for the example of Peter and his life, the things he got did well in the things he didn't. God, I thank you for the example even of him feeling like he was devoured and how you restored him and you perfected and strengthened and established him, laid your foundation in him. And so, God, we come to you now in the midst of our brokenness. We cast ourselves upon you, God. We need you to rescue us. We need you to live in and through us. We can't live this life of being an exile and an alien, of living out our hope in front of a world that needs you on our own. God, we're in desperate need of you. And we thank you that it's, that it's out of that desperation that you meet us with everything that we need. God, will you help us to stand firm in our faith, to get into your word and let what you say be more real than the things we feel and the things that we encounter, Lord God. God, we love you so very much and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.